You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I am Dr. Michael McAfee, President and CEO of PolicyLink, a national research and action institute focusing on advancing racial and economic equity. I'm pleased to be in conversation with Brother Bakari Sellers. He became the youngest African-American elected official in the country and represented South Carolina's 90th Congressional District. Today, we'll be talking about his new memoir, My Vanishing Country, which is now available for purchase at your local bookstores and also a New York Times bestseller. So congratulations, Bakari. In it, he tells the story of his family and the story of countless families across America, especially the Black working class. If you'd like to ask him a question, please ask it in the chat if you are watching on YouTube or in the comments if you're watching on Facebook. So now we're just going to dive in and begin to ask a series of questions. And Kari, I appreciate before we started the generosity of allowing me to ask whatever the spirit moved me to ask. And so I really wanted to start just really um, with a deep sense of gratitude for your voice, um, your voice around justice, your voice around um, Reminding folks that race still matters. And actually, as you say in the book, um, using empathy as a balm for suffering. So I wanted to thank you for how you show up in that regard. And I wanted to start after the thanks are out of the way with just a simple question. How are you feeling? You can't pull you off your best Don Lemon impersonation and not let me give some thanks back. So let me <laughs> let me say thank you. So, brother, it's a. It's a privilege to be here with you. I wish that I was in uh, San Francisco. I wish that I was traveling. I wish that I was able to. I'm an extrovert. And so thank you for checking on me because extroverts doing this time from the South, you know, I shake hands, I hug. Uh, you know, those things are so passe in 2020. That's right. Uh, and today is just a, it's a weirdly emotional day. Um, and so yeah. uh, we get to have this conversation. Um, as, as I'm looking at my, my phone and my clock right now, as George Floyd's body is finally hitting the dirt and he yeah. is being buried, you know, as we speak in Houston, Texas. And so, um, for those people who are watching, just know and, and say a prayer, um, for his family. And he, I'm from a big city, you know, where we got three whole stoplights and a blinking light. And my mom and dad, my mom and dad would always say that. The two most important words in the English language are the words thank you, uh, because they're not nearly said enough. And so I have to say thank you to the Commonwealth Club. I have to say thank you to you, everyone who's watching, um, everyone who's pulled up, you know, a, a, a folding chair or, or listening to this, however they are streaming um, for supporting. For those who haven't support supported yet, those who will. Um, to come from Denmark, South Carolina. I'm literally the first New York Times bestselling author from my city. <laughs> you know, in big cities, that 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 big, that means a lot. You know, and yeah. um, I also need to apologize because you're probably going to hear the voices of um, two 17 month old twins running through this house at some point. Uh, Sadie and Stokely, they're my they're my heartbeat. They're 15 year old sister. Uh, just got her permit, but she's upstairs mad at the world about something. We can talk about that, too, because I don't know what I'm doing yeah. with teenagers. But my twins are running around. But all in all, I'm, I'm happy to be here. You asked me, how am I doing? Um, 
so that that answer is, is twofold. And let me be completely honest, as we'll be throughout this discussion. Um, the first is, and I, ta- I highlighted in the book, uh, my wife last year, January 7th, 528. Um, Stokely was born, 533. Um, Sadie was born um, by about 10, 11 o'clock at night. She was passed out. She was feeling warm. She threw up. Um, her eyes rolled in the back of her head. It was just me, her, and a lactation specialist. She was trying to, we were trying to learn how to breastfeed her. Uh, twin babies um i'll never forget that night um it was just i no one was moving fast enough for me the nurses were taking their time finally because we had a relationship it was three black women uh who were the OBGYNs in my wife's practice i knew them i called them up i had them come to the hospital um they came as quickly as they can one of the OBGYNs actually had an eight-year-old child she left her garage open and called her neighbor to come over and watch her daughter while her daughter was still asleep. I mean, that's the type of care that they provided because I told them something wasn't right with my wife. She just wasn't right. And the nurses, although she had passed out and kind of come to, they just weren't giving her the proper attention. We found out she lost seven units of blood. She was hemorrhaging. She spent the first 36 hours of our children's life in ICU. And so went through a lot with that moment. And, you know, the overlay of politics, African-American women are four times more likely to die in childbirth than um, their white colleagues or counterparts. And then two months later, our little girl, Sadie, um, she was still a little bit yellow. We couldn't figure it out. She was still a little bit yellow. Mm -hmm. Um, We went to the pediatrician and our pediatrician called us back on a Saturday. And you should know that if your pediatrician ever calls you on a Saturday, it's not a good thing. And our pediatrician Mm -hmm. um, let us know. Um, that we needed to go to the hospital as quickly as possible. Sadie got diagnosed with biliary atresia. Um, we had a Kasai procedure, which is a procedure where they try to connect your large intestine to your liver. That didn't work. We ended up going to Duke University. She was on a liver transplant waiting list for 93 days. She got a transplant on September 1st. And um, we're so blessed and so fortunate. Um, she got the gifts of life. She's thriving. She's running around here. She loves the camera. I don't know where she got that from. Yeah, she got that from her daddy, but I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so you asked me how I'm doing, right. and I can tell you that um, even though we're in quarantine, and even though there is so much going on around us, um, my family's good because we're all healthy, and we're all together, and we're all happy, so we count it all as joy. That's right. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad that you started there. You know, I feel the same sense of privilege and gratitude and really just full of being blessed that I get to work and do what I love, but the employees at PolicyLink are able to continue to work through this time. But you said something in your book that was really important because it speaks to something that I'm holding, and I wanted you to just explain it a little bit more. You said anger, being angry isn't a sin. Yeah. yeah. And I feel deeply angry right now, in some ways also guilty because of how we're taken care of, and angry that Angry because of what I see in the world, angry because I don't have full confidence that leaders like us will translate that tension from the street, the demand in the street into really the transformative action that folks have. And so I'm I'm trying to hold that and channel it in productive ways. But that anger is not a sin spoke to me in your book. So I would love for you to just share more about that. So the crazy thing is, and yeah, my, my, this is why I wanted to name the book that I wanted mm-hmm. to name the book. Anger is not a sin. And yeah. 
my publisher and everyone else, we were having these conversations about the pictures that were painted in the book and the story about country and being country, right? Country versus Southern. Uh, for mm-hmm. those who haven't read, it's like a, it's, it's a, it's a whole thing in the book. Yeah. Um, and not just that, but the country and the ideals that the country holds. But, you know, I've always learned and it, it's always been sizzling in my spirit, as they say, as the, uh, as the comedian country Wayne says, it's been sizzling in my spirit mm-hmm. that anger is not a sin and too many people treat it as such. The trick though, mm-hmm. is that you can't allow anger to paralyze you, right? Yeah. You have to allow mm-hmm. anger to manifest itself into productivity, which is very difficult to do. Um, yeah. But it's 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 righteous. And those people who have that righteous anger who are in the streets protesting right now, I'm with them 110 percent. The best example I can give, and I'm, I don't mean to be jumping in front of your questions and wherever you may have is, no, you're fine. Go um, wherever you, want to go. you know, the Charleston massacre for me, um, where mm-hmm. Dylan Roof, um, I was I was in Charleston, you know, and I, when I write about it, I was a block away from when. That happened. I was with Hillary Clinton and some others. I knew Clemente Pinkney so well. Um, he would have been perfect for this moment. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, Clem let a straggly white boy that they never seen before into Bible study. And he set him down right by him in Bible study. He didn't sit him on the other side of the church, didn't lock him out. Like if a straggly white boy with a backpack walk on your door right now, what you going to do? Right. Exactly. Right. But it's, it's Bible study Wednesday. What did they do? They let him in the church, right? They let him in. That's what you do. That's what you're supposed to do. They had a full hour of worship and learning and experience. Clem set him right by him so that this new kid that they didn't know. I mean, this is, sounds really weird, but they treated, they treated Dylan Roof like you would hope to treat Jesus when you meet him, right? Yes. That's right. right, like a refugee, like uh, somebody you don't know, somebody who's just here to get the word. They set him right by the preacher, mm-hmm. and when they prayed their benediction, he shot him. And Clem was so strong; Clem made it all the way to the church. I mean, all the way to the hospital. Excuse me. Eight others were killed. Um, he stood over Polly Shepherd and asked and told Polly that he was going to let her live. Polly's old. Polly's like eighty years old now, mm-hmm. and said, "I'm going to let you live, but um, I want you to I want you to go out and tell the story." For everyone who's watching or, or who will watch, please, whenever you're in, in Charleston. I actually, weirdly enough, think that I compare Charleston to San Francisco often, and just in terms of the sheer beauty of the city. But when you're in Charleston, let me know. I'll take you to Mother Emanuel AME. And when you get to anger is not a sin, I tell that story. Because there are a lot of people in that church who are further along in their Christian journey, further along in their religious journey, and they can forgive Dylan Ruth. Yeah. And I can't. And personally, I'm not there. Personally, that story, it makes me angry. Um, seeing yeah. a knee on the back of George Floyd's neck makes me angry. Um, you know, I, I stated this many times since the video of George Floyd came out. And to be black in this country is being in the perpetual state of grieving. Because we went from anger to immense sadness, back to anger, back to rage back to clear-eyed for justice. Today, it was a home-going celebration, right? And for all the white folks who are watching the funeral today, yes, we do have four-hour funerals. That is the way that we do. Welcome to the Black Church. And usually, the the only thing you didn't get was a repast because usually after the funeral, you get to go into the little cafeteria in the church and you get your fried chicken or fried white and you get your macaroni and cheese and your rice and gravy and 
you do all of those things. Didn't get that today, but that's usually what happens. Um, but we go through these stages of grief and breathing. And I'm angry. I really am. And your anger is, should be noted. One of the things you should challenge yourself, though, you're, you're, the challenge should not be to not be angry. I think that's the wrong mm-hmm. challenge. And I'm not in Yana Benzant. I love her, but I'm not her. She's she's smarter mm-hmm. than I am. But don't 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 look at your anger as a sin. Never. But um, challenge yourself to meet this moment because because as a country, we've met, we've been in moments like this before and we swung and missed. We had a moment in 1955 when people saw the image of Emmett Till. We've had a moment on the Emmett Pettus Bridge when for the first time in primetime news, the six o'clock, the five thirty, six o'clock news was showing mm-hmm. images um, where people were getting beaten and bludgeoned on Emmett Pettus Bridge in Alabama. We, we had an opportunity after um, the president of the United States sang Amazing Grace at the funeral mm-hmm. for Clemente Pinckney. And yeah. we missed all of these moments. Let's make this moment true. And so in order to make it true, how do you center? How do you stop this thing that happens where we center white comfort over black pain? Like, I don't know how you, I don't know how we move forward if everything has to be juxtaposed, whether you're white, black, or whatever, quite frankly, whether I'm comfortable with it, whether I'm comfortable with the language. (laughs) But bro, you're looking at it, you're looking at the wrong, like, you have to allow yourself to let go of some of this stuff, right? Yeah. And if we were on cable TV, I would have cursed right then because we can actually curse <laughs> on tape. Like I can't cuss on Wolf, but I can actually <laughs> curse like on Don Lemon and, and like right. later in the night, right? But you have to right. let you have to allow yourself to let go of some of this stuff, right? Yeah. It's not on black folk to cure this world of racism. Mm-hmm. Say more. Like, that, Say more. Like it's not it's not your it, it's not on you. What one of the things that that I wrote this book, My Vanishing Country, and I wanted to tell my truth. Just as every day you go to work, you try to speak truth to power, right? Yeah. And I'm not yeah. sure everybody understands. So let's let's back up because, and I mm-hmm. forgive, we're we're 20 minutes into a discussion and I haven't really framed the discussion. So I apologize. Let me, let me reframe the discussion here before we mm-hmm. get to the end. I like to define what racism is so people understand it. Um, Stokely Carmichael defines racism as this. He says that if you want to lynch me, that's your problem. But if you have the power to lynch me, that's my problem. See, racism is a power construct, right? It's not somebody calling you nigger. It's these systems of oppression that people live under. It's the fact that Flint in Denmark, South Carolina, where I'm from, still don't have clean water. It's the fact that children in this country are still punished because of the zip code that they're born into. It's the fact that the fastest, the fastest growing small businesses we have in the United States of America are owned by black women. Yet, many times over, they are the ones who have limited access to capital and resources, right? It's the fact that we have lack of access to quality care in our communities, especially in the rural South where hospitals are closing, where many people live in food deserts, which y'all big city folk probably take for granted. But where I'm from, where I wrote about, you know, it's, it's two to three miles to the nearest, um, to the nearest, a grocery store where you can get fresh fruits or vegetables is more than that, right? And so when you think about these systems of oppression, that is what we're talking about. This is larger than George Floyd, right? This is larger than Brianna. This is larger than Amala. This this is the systemic racism and injustice that we're talking about. And 
when I say that it's not on us to to remedy this country of the scourge of racism, one of the things I want to highlight, though, is that we have to begin to have very, very difficult conversations. Right now in this country, we have an empathy deficit. And in order to make up that deficit of empathy, we have to begin to listen and we have to begin to understand. And everybody's not going to be a social justice advocate. Everybody's not going to have to make a statement. For example, I'm a huge Tiger Woods fan. His statement was weak sauce. I'm a huge, uh, I, I used to like the Knicks a little bit, not as much recently, but their, their statement, could have, they could have kept it. But like sometimes you don't have to make a statement. Sometimes you can read a book. And when I wrote My Vanishing Country, I wrote it so that we could get some pride and hope. But then when people read it and wanted to know about the experience of what it meant to be black in this country, the experience of the pain from the Orangeburg massacre that I write about where my father was shot to the Charleston massacre, we're able to um, get some understanding about the struggles there. Thank you for sharing this. Are, are you comfortable talking about um, how that massacre has shaped you and, and just some of the things that your father imbued in you? I'm literally an open book. All right. I, that was a really hard, that was a horrible time. But, you know, <laughs> you, you get it. I am. A, I'm literally an open book. All right. Share, share some of the, First, I want you to share. Um, I know how magical being in the South and West Point, Mississippi was for me in the summer times. Share some of those fondest memories you have of just being a boy in Denmark, in that region. And then connected to what did you take from your parents that shaped who you are right now? And then just bring that right on up into what was your dad trying to tell you and imbuing you? Uh, as I told you, we wouldn't be by ourselves long. They, uh, they just, and their mom was trying to stop him from coming in. But this is what happens. <laughs> so this is what happens. So when you have babies, you just, they just jump in. So this is Stokely and Sadie and they love the camera. Um, so growing up in Denmark, you're waiting. <laughs> she waved at you. Growing up in Denmark, um, where you have three stoplights and a blinking light, right? Where it's a country city where everybody knows your name. Um, you realize um, that you're very, very rich in experiences. You're rich in who you are. You're rich in understanding that you can be unapologetic in your blackness, right? Uh, you don't recognize, you don't necessarily recognize the poverty around you. We didn't realize that it was a really, really poor community. I, I'll give you an example. In the book, I talk about examples, right? I, I didn't mean to run those. That was pretty redundant. But uh, in the book, we talk about the number one thing you can do as a person of color is be an example, right? We highlight that. And one of the things that we used to do in Denmark, South Carolina, as my, my kids are now going crazy. One of the things we used to do in Denmark, South Carolina, um, was take our, we had a, we had a uh, recreation center that my father ran, right? And every year, every summer, we would take the kids to Carowinds. Carowinds is like, um, how can I explain it? Carowinds is like a bootleg Six Flags, right? Okay. It's our theme park that's close by. Um, it's like McDowell's and coming to America. <laughs> Do you remember that? Okay. Yeah. That's for anybody who doesn't know that joke. If you watch coming to America, McDowell's is a knockoff from McDonald's. That, that's what it's like, but it's on, uh, the, it's on the, it's on the, uh, it's on the border of North Carolina and South Carolina. 
And we would take kids every year after the Denmark Recreation Center summer program. Every year we would get on a bus and we would go up to Kerwin's. And it wasn't the turkey legs. It wasn't the big bags of popcorn. It wasn't the uh, theme park, the, the big rides. People where I'm from, they wanted to um, stand on the border. They wanted to straddle the border between North Carolina and South Carolina and take pictures. And the reason they wanted to do that is because they wanted to be able to tell people that they literally had left South Carolina, that they had seen something else, they, that they had been somewhere, like that they were no longer defined by um, 29042, which was our zip code. And so the power of example in my my mother and father was so intentional about it. And if you don't, I mean, if people are watching this and they get a kick out of me and you and they don't remember a whole lot. They were like, you know, today was a busy day, but I got a chance to tune into this YouTube for three or four minutes. It was all right. Just remember this one piece, like rededicate yourself to being intentional and purposeful in everything that you do, especially when it comes to raising your children, especially when it comes to being advocates for justice. Right. And my parents were very, very intentional and purposeful. I'm a product of the proverb. It takes a village to raise a child. And my village had Stokely Carmichael had Marion Barry, Julian Bond, Kathleen Cleaver, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer. You know, that's who we either knew directly or my father was friends with who passed away before I was born. And I was able to learn from them. Um, Willie Ricks. I mean, you met Stokely a minute ago. Stokely is named after Stokely Carmichael. Um, and because I had this this village. I mean, the lens that I contextualize things through is from being a child of the movement. And that's how I look at things politically, culturally, and socially as a child of the movement. And, you know, just their struggles, it helps me with the perseverance and keep, keep going, you know, thinking about the struggles of Bob Moses, you know, I don't know um, when you're writing your book, have you written your book yet? Oh, I'm not. I hope you're working on it. The trick to writing a book, though, let me tell you something. Uh, going back to being intentional and purposeful, there are two things uh-huh. I'll tell you. Like, there's a lot of stuff you said you were going to do, but you didn't have time, right? And God's right. giving you a lot of time right now because you're on quarantine. <laughs> so you don't have any excuse. That's first. And second, right. 15 minutes a day at minimum. Right. Sit down. I, I, wrote, I sat down and wrote for at minimum 15 minutes a day. You should do that. Some days All will right. be longer, but sit still in a place for 15 minutes a day. Um, um, and you and you'll you'll get it done. Um, but but as you are going through this process, um, as you share your story, yeah. one of the things you realize, though, is that telling your truth and putting those words on paper, um, like I was able to do in my vanishing country, um, it's not only cathartic and therapeutic, but it actually will help because we come from a people of storytellers. It will help ensure. Yeah. Um, that we're able to pass down those stories from one generation to another. And um, some of the stories you have can fill in the gap uh, for others who, you know, you can, you can stand in the gap for that proverbial it takes a village to raise a child. You can be somebody's, a part of somebody's village just by the stories they pick up and read. Bakari, when you would stand on that border as a little boy, where did you project yourself? So my parents always taught me we could be a change agent. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I'd be here. I don't know if I thought I would, we would be here. Is that the question that you're asking? Like, if I thought we would be at this point, at this moment, if I thought I would be at this moment? 
Yeah, I was thinking more about as you think about your own sense of purpose for your own life, like in your head as you were standing on that border talking about folks wanting to talk about oh, okay. oh. in somewhere. Did you have a sense of where you wanted to be? Yeah, I did. I did. I did. I did. Firmly, firmly, I did. That, that's a that's a good question. You're talking about being an old soul, so I was curious about. Yeah, your no, firmly, I did, and and part of the reason was because my parents said if you want to be a doctor, to be okay. Well, this is going to sound weird, but at that time, if you want to be a doctor, be Benjamin Carson. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't have the same ring that it once had. Right? No, 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 no. For those who are watching, who may not know that in black churches, especially throughout the South, yeah, you had pictures of Jesus, Martin Luther King, and Ben Carson. Right, those are the pictures you had in the in the in the repass hall. Things have changed. Um, so no, but they would say if you want to be a doctor, be Ben Carson. If you want to be a lawyer, be Thurgood Marshall. If you want to be a politician, I have pictures. In my room, I have my my childhood room. I still have pictures of Nelson Mandela. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. I knew I was purposeful. Even then, my parents made sure they also just they treated me with so many experiences that. Although we were sharing these experiences with other kids in my hometown, other kids in my neighborhood, um, they were very, very honest about the fact that I, even though I was black in this world, I could be anything I wanted to be. Did you feel you talked about growing up and you talked about um, not knowing you were in poverty? Um, I didn't feel that I, I, for moments. It, but there was generally a lot of fun, and especially in the summertime. But I'm, I'm trying to juxtapose that with a lot of folks who are white in rural America and who are feeling left out. How do you connect as a bridge, if at all right now, to some of this anxiety of what people would call flyover country, people feeling disconnected from the opportunity centers in the nation? It seems like your story could be one and how you show up could be a bridge to some of this tension where we see ourselves as other and not connected. You're, you're talking about things. That's a, Again, here you go, channel. To you. Now you're now you're in Chris Cuomo, Anderson Cooper, rarefied air right here. You're asking really good questions. So you're asking something that we don't really do a lot of. In the media, when you say working class, they mean white. When they say rural, they mean white. When they say urban, though, that means me and you. This is an urban, urban conversation, right? And one of the things I try to do in my vanishing country was debunk those and throw those on their head and say that we have these rural working class folk. Now, the other thing that I talk about in the lat, because this book is not a, it's not a, as you realize, it's a, it's a political book, but it's not partisan at all. There's nothing right. in this book that is like truly Democrat versus Republican. It's no, I, I just didn't feel as if I, I, I would muddle my voice. And I felt like there were so many things that we could say without having to go down that path of divisiveness. But I don't believe in economic anxiety is a true theme that's pervasive in this country. I think economic anxiety is a myth. I think we have a lot of cultural anxiety that's rooted in race. I think the fact that the browning of this country is petrifying a large group of people, um, yeah. that they feel as if they're going to be replaced by immigrants. They feel as if they're going to be replaced by others. And for me, I'm very cognizant of that, and I have to push back on that. Where there can be a bridge built, though, I think there should be. Um, because I, I, I really believe that um, there are some common binds between socioeconomic levels in this country. And I think yeah. that if you're poor in this country, you have not all, but many of the same struggles. Well, when you talk about the bridge and you use the word in the book, 
atonement. Do you think that's essential to that bridge being able to be built? And what does that what does that word mean for you? And what does the work look like if it is a path to building the bridge? You got to. So, yeah, I mean, I, the, the, and I frame that in the sense that black people are always in a position where we have to forgive. Like we talked yeah. about that earlier. Like even mm-hmm. at the Dylan Root, they're like, when are, are y'all going to y'all forgive? Like uh, the family, George Floyd's family, do you forgive the officers? I mean, and there'd be certain members of the family, of course, that forgive, et cetera, et cetera. But why are black folk always in this position to forgive? And the, the wild thing is, and I'm, I'm not a, I, I, I rock with Al Sharpton, but I'm not like a huge Al Sharpton fan. We're friends, but it's, it's, you know, I don't necessarily put him in the same category as I put a Stokely or others. Um, but today he said something that was really refreshing. And he talked about the power of a name. And I thought about that a lot. Like, you know, I'm 35 years old. I have a beautiful family. I have a New York Times bestselling book about my story. And every time I sign that book, I sign the name of someone who owned my family. Like, when I sign my name, Bakari Sellers, the last name is not the name that my family adorned, that is the name that was given to my family when we got off of ships from West Africa on the coast of South Carolina. Like that is how pervasive and profound that is. So even at one of my pinnacles and highest moments that I will achieve in this world, right, having this level of success, even when I sign my name, I'm signing the name of someone who wants to own my family and put them through degradation, oppression, etc. And so when you when you think about that type of position that that you have, um, you recognize that what I write in my vanishing country is true, that we've made a lot of progress, but we still have so far. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. You also talk in your book as you think about progress. You talked about as you were when you were in office being frustrated with some of the elected leaders who you felt maybe have lost their way a little bit in terms of serving. I think I'm getting that right. What, what church? You go to church, Michael? Well, we probably should have had this conversation off the off the. <laughs> No, I don't have a church. I don't have a church home out here. No, I don't want your pastor calling me. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, you know, back when we were, back when our fathers were toiling in the vineyard, the black church was the epicenter for social justice and change. Right. That's right. And I just feel like right now it, it's reclaiming that. Weirdly enough, like Al Sharpton today, I think began what. TD and others wanted to do, which was reclaim the purpose of the black church. I just, I wanted to challenge institutions to be better than they were because for a long period of time, the black church became a place where you wanted to figure out if you were a mega church or how many branches you could have. Right. Right. It wasn't focused on being the epicenter of sustenance to um, both heal you spiritually, emotionally, et cetera. Um, It wasn't the place where you went to ensure that it was the upper center for community involvement, engagement, voter activity, et cetera. It, it, it got focused. But now, right now, it's all hands on deck. And right. I think we, I, 
I don't have a problem with challenging these institutions at all. In the book, I challenge this, this country. And there are people who have a more conservative bent who will chastise me for having the audacity to challenge the United States of America. And I'm very firm in my stance that my father, the blood of my family literally runs through the soil of this great country. Like my father was shot February 8th, 1968, so that he could bold, so that he could bring a, a end to the injustice that we saw through the Jim Crow South. And so I have just as much claim to this country as anyone else, which means that I can push to make it better. When I'm listening to you talk, I often think about um, you, you are sharing your, your spiritual orientation, the power of what your family says. But if I make the leap, or if I'm listening carefully, the way you love humanity is very evident. Yeah. But I often hear people say that love is weak. And so I would love to hear you, just what you think about, where does this nation go if it can't figure out how to love Black people? And why is that so important while not saying you're at, it's at the exclusion of others? Where does this nation go if it can't figure out how to love Black folks? Well, let me just start off by saying if love is weak, then call me the weakest SOB on earth, because <laughs> I'll be that. Um, yeah. Because I am a lover. And I'm a very emotional being. I write about it. In, you, I write about it in the book. I think you probably can count 12 times where I cried in the yeah. book. I just, you know, <laughs> I, am, I am someone who, who falls in love and, and I love hard. Like I fell in love with this country and everything it could be and everything it can be. Um, but I'm also petrified. Um, and maybe this is a part of my next book, but I'm petrified because there is a large portion of this country that does not give people of color the benefit of their humanity. Like people watching, I mean, even if you're teetering, if you if you if you hung on this long, then you must like me and you might maybe they're just hanging out because they know <laughs> you. But like, ask yourself, do you know anybody who can put their knee on the neck of somebody else for eight minutes and 46 seconds? Like, you can't even do that to a dog. Right. That's right. And I made the mistake. That's why I love social media and hate it. I made the mistake of saying that they treated George Floyd like a dog. I said it like last Wednesday and somebody <laughs> tweeted me directly and they said, Bakari, you know, George Floyd would have been a dog. They would have arrested all four officers. By now. That's right. And when you're raising black children in this country, I have a 15 year old daughter, 17 month old twins. I mean, the, the question remains like, like, what do we tell them other than the truth? My, my daughter was protesting yesterday. It was a proud moment. She was out there. Uh, she wanted to go by herself. She and her girlfriends, they went. They wore their mask. They, they made their signs. They went out. Yeah. We dropped them off. We picked them up. Um, but, like, why does my daughter have to protest for Black Lives Matter? Like, why can't she just be 15? Like, right. why? Exactly. Like, why can't she just? Why does she have to be so cognizant? Why does she have to? Worked so hard and so diligent in proving to people her value. So we have a long way to go. That's the truth of the matter. And I think that um, you you asked a really really good question. That and you know the the weird question I get back to this whole thing is not for black people to eradicate because I know you've had a lot of your white friends call you and they're like, "What can I do?" All right, which is cool. I get it. Hate the question, but I understand it. I like the first step out. You know, I. I appreciate that. And people then ask me, they're like, well, tell me about that conversation. Cause I always talk about the fact that 
you know, we have to have a conversation with our sons and daughters that white folk don't have to ask. That's right. But then I think, and I'm like, what do white folk teach their children? Like, are y'all teaching y'all children that my daughter's life matters? I mean, are they watching you and are you in your work? Are you empowering black folk around you so that your child can see that? Are you talking to them with dignity and respect, even when they're not on the phone with you anymore? You know, are you are you value are you valuing them? Are you are you teaching them to value others? Are you teaching people, your children to love humanity like all of us? I mean, those are the that's the question that I ask. I know what you're teaching your kids. Mike. You're teaching your kids how to stay alive. Right. That's what I'm teaching my kids, like how to stay alive. But I I wonder, you know, what are white parents teaching their children? And maybe that's real heavy for, you know, uh, informed Commonwealth conversation about a book. But this is where we are. And we got to have these conversations. I think these conversations are difficult, healthy, but necessary. And I hope that when people read this book, it will spur more of those conversations. You know, you um, thank you for sharing that. You know, you've I think you put an excellent marker down that really starts with what are we doing in the home if we want to get past this moment? I know a lot of money is circulating right now. A lot of folks are throwing money at stuff, but you're right. Children, grandchildren, et cetera, there's a whole lot can do that doesn't cost money. And when you think about then all this money that's flowing around, but isn't tending to the structural stuff that needs to happen, but people may feel good by doing it. When you think about your leadership voice, what are you beginning to think about ways to help people hold both of those tensions? Yes to resolving stuff related to the pandemic. Yes to beginning to invest in institutions led by people of color, uh, especially organizations like the Movement for Black Lives Matter and others, Movement for Black Lives and others. But how do we get people to make this shift? Because it seems so difficult. And I'm watching this play out around policing where I can't tell you how many folks have called and said, where do you come down on policing? Are you for abolition, defund, whatever you want to call it? I'm like, we're getting ready to do it again, which is not answer the question, is this an institution that is liberating versus oppressive? We are now into slicing and dicing the language that is further dividing us within movement before we even get to folks who don't even care about this conversation. So when you think about that, where, where, what are you thinking about in your leadership voice and your actions that are going to help us make this bridge to finally getting to a place where we can tend to some of the structural stuff in this nation? Well, I feel like I have to answer, I have to answer one question that I want, the way I want to, and then I'll answer another mm-hmm. question directly. First, to answer the question the way I want to, in my vanishing country, I, divide, I define leadership um, mm-hmm. because I think people just have it all types of screwed up. Leadership is what that is, your definition. Yeah, leadership is not having followers. You know, people think that when you're a pastor in a pulpit or when you're a CEO and you have other people up under you or followers, then you're a leader. That's not that's not it at all. Because leaders beget other leaders. If you don't have people around you that can go out and lead and organize in their respective communities, you are not a leader. You are a false prophet. Okay? That's what that's I mean, you that's what you are. And so you have to make sure that you're cultivating others around you that can go out and lead in their respective places. That's first. Mm-hmm. The same thing is, we're having a conversation. I wrote an op-ed piece on CNN not recently about, I mean, just recently about, um, you know, some of the things we can do around policing. Mm-hmm. And then people start talking about defund policing, abolition, and all this other stuff. 
When you dial 911, you are going to have police that show up. No one is saying that should not be the case. I do think Democrats suck at messaging, though. They have and they always will. And (laughs) proverbial bedwetters and a really bad at messaging Um, because defund police is just an awful slogan. But what people are saying is that you should go line by line. Even Scott Walker today was like, let's talk about reforming the police. You should go line by line. And as you're militarizing, you know, the L.A. Police Department is 55 percent of the city budget. Fifty five percent. It has drones. Right. It has military vehicles. What all we're saying is that some of those dollars can go to, I don't know, summer jobs programs. Some of those jobs can go to mental health awareness programs because even law enforcement will tell you that when there's a mental health crisis, why are they the first ones to show up? That's right. They don't want to be the first ones. They don't have the training. They don't want to be the first ones to show up. You can you can put that money into drug rehabilitation programs. Like there's there are a lot of things we can do to make it preventative. And people are like, what are you going to do with limited police? Limited policing. Like we have limited policing right now. All you need to do is go to the suburbs. I mean, that's all you got to do. You want to see limited policing? Go to the suburbs. You'll see it. Ain't no police out there. So my only point is no one is trying. And I actually think you can pay police officers more. Yeah. I think you can trim the budget, get rid of all the fat, pay people who do this work so they don't have to work two jobs. You know how many police officers I know who work at bars? Yeah. Just to make their ends meet? They should not have to do that. Right. But I think that we can trim off millions of dollars from our policing budgets, put those into programs that actually work, pay police officers more. And I think that you can actually get to the pro- to the point. But right now, you're right. People don't care about nuance. Everybody wants to talk about the slogans, which. To be a Democrat is hard. I don't know. We just churn out really bad slogans. I don't know who we're paying for these slogans, but they need to be they need to be defunded. <laughs> We've got about 10 minutes left. I would love to just take a moment and let you think about what are some things that you want to share from the book with the audience? So the the book is cool. And one of the things that I always tell people is a lot of people look at the perspective of race through the context of their lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people look at race through some historical context, which I try to add. And I talk about my father's journey from 1955 um, in Emmett Till through Jimmy Lee Jackson. Um, SNCC, Orangeburg Massacre, through the highs of me being the youngest black elected official in the country, the lows of Charleston, come out in the book and talk about my anxiety, um, you know, races that I've won, races that I've lost, the HBCU experience. At the end of the day, I think when black folk read it, they'll get a sense of pride. I hope when others read it, they get a sense of understanding. At the end of the day, recognize that my trauma is not your trauma, but we can persevere together. Thank you. Thank you. Bakari, you talked about a couple of things. I'm going to ask couple, just one, more, two, one or two more questions, and then I'm, I'm going to move on to some of these great questions. You did talk about, you talked about the HBCU experience. You, you seem to have this really wonderful brotherhood. What does, what, does, um, what does brotherhood mean to you? I mean, I know folks who brothers have gone to Morehouse, and the camaraderie, the unity, you see it as lifelong. What does that mean to you as you continue to evolve as a man? What have you taken from that connectedness to other brothers? I mean, Morehouse was an interesting school because I tell people that we were an an HBCU that was all male. And they're like, Mm -hmm. what? And I'm like, it's the most diverse place on earth. We have people from all 50 states, Mm -hmm. 100 countries, the leadership they teach you. You have to recognize in Morehouse, we had Julian, 
Maynard, David Satcher, Edwin Moses, Spike Lee, Samuel L. Jackson. I write anecdotes in a book about Samuel L. Jackson that people <laughs> never knew. You know, yeah. I, I'll tell you one. I won't tell you the other. Because <laughs> you got to read the book to find the other. But one, you know, Samuel L. Jackson walked behind the casket of, of Dr. King when he was killed. When you read the other part of Samuel L. Jackson's story, why he had to take an involuntary hiatus from Morehouse, it's going to open your eyes. Um, we had Dr. King, of course. Um, it was just, they put a crown above your head for you yeah. to grow into. And um, my parents gave me choices. My mom and dad said, you can go to any school you want to go to in the country, as long as it's an HBCU. Um, and wow. so it was, a, it was an awesome experience um, going in. You know, I hope my children decide on Hampton, Howard, Morehouse, Bellman, Pam. I hope that's where they want to go to. Are you still close to some of the fellas that you just talk about in the book? The ones who ribbed you in basketball and others? Oh, yeah. Jared Lohot. I was on the phone with him. <laughs> yeah, like, those are my guys. I mean, I talked to Clark Jones, who's a well-known comedian. State Lee Merritt um, uh-huh. representing the family in um, both the Ahmaud Arbery case, um, in the uh-huh. Breonna Taylor case, and he's representing yeah. the family. In the, um, he and Ben Crump are representing the family in Minneapolis. Um, you know, John David Washington, who I went to school with, is a great actor, Denzel's son. I still tell yeah. all these guys, man. This is our, <laughs> they keep you humble, if nothing else. That's right. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm going to move to some of these questions. Um, some of these are really good. Um, let me start with um, who do you think should be on the short list for vice president? I think the vice president should be Kamala Harris. Um, I think Amy Klobuchar is no longer on the list. I think Kamala Harris is a layup, but as we know, Democrats miss layups all the time. Uh, right now, I mean, because it's just me and you and a few of my closest friends here, I can tell you that I believe the shortlist from really good sources uh, is Susan Rice, Kamala, um, Luan Grisham, who's a governor of um, New Mexico. Uh, you, you will probably have Keisha Bottoms, who is I'm vetted as well. But at the end of the day, um, the likelihood that it's Kamala goes up every single day. They were, they were talking about announcing the VP pick um, during um, 4th of July week weekend. Um, I think he's moved that back to August, but I think there's a lot of tug to pull that back to 4th of July weekend. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. No Stacey Abrams, huh? No, I, I, you know, I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a friend of Stacey. Stacey has never really been vetted by the Biden campaign. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that her being a pick for VP was more of a choice of um, many of us outsiders, mm-hmm. you know, people in media than it was actual reality. It's very hard mm-hmm. from going to be um, a former state legislature, legislator, excuse me, to being one step away from president. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would I mean thinking about it and I love this is coming from someone who is friends with Stacey and loves Stacey and would say this if she was sitting where you are. Um, yeah. Think about I want everybody who is thinking in their room. I mean, imagine if your state rep was then vice president. Do you do you want your state representative currently not your congress, not the person in Congress, but the person who represents you in Sacramento to be you know, vice president of the United States. And the answer over, overwhelmingly would likely be no because of the experience factor. And it's very hard to be prepared. And mind you, I came from the state house, so I know it's very hard to be prepared to be one step away from being president of the United States. And then that national light, 
um, that transparency. You know, Kamala's yeah. going through that. I'm a huge Kamala fan, so I'm biased. And also take my political predictions for what they're worth, because I'm also the same person who told you Hillary Clinton was going to get 330 electoral votes. Yeah, yeah. we got to win this next one. We'll, we'll do it. Um, someone asked, Picard, do you know your family's surname before Sellers was given? I don't. We do know where we're from. Um, we have been researching that. We think we know what it is. I've been given some names uh, by um, some of my friends who are um, in various tribes, especially along the west coast of Africa. So we've been given some some surnames, but we are still somewhat in the wilderness on that. Maybe maybe by the time Stokely and Sadie get of age, we would we will know, so we can we can teach them that. But I do know what Bukhari is Swahili. Bukhari means noble promise. Um, and so we, we hold on to that extremely tight. Folks are saying um, the race, there's several questions related to race. And one is um, the racial divide that exists is so pervasive in our society. Do you have hope that if we can forgive the past, we can move forward to a new, better future? Yeah, but before you get to forgiveness, you have to get to some level of atonement, right? Like it's yeah. not just it's like, do we have to just forgive the past or can we do? Can we also like. Can we acknowledge there was a wrong done yeah. um, before we get to us forgiving? Um, so I think, I mean, I think that we have to get the understanding and empathy because right now we're not even, we're, we, and it comes from the top, but we're not even really an empathetic country. And so we kind of have to get to that point first. And since you're holding the little one, do you recommend any books for children to share some understanding of Black people or culture? What books would you recommend to folks? So the books that would I rep- would I recommend to what age group? Because I don't know. I don't, any, can you recommend any books for children? Stamped is a good book. It's a young adult book. Yeah. Um, and it's called Stamped? Stamped. I don't have many. You know, the weird part is I don't have many children's books that tackle this issue very well. Um, one of yeah. my next book is going to be a young adult book, actually, um, that oh, we're man. working on. Hopefully I'm able to write that in one with my beautiful wife, um, who... Um, because I did it. She's like, anybody can be an author now, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh, so she's actually going to be, a, she's a better writer than I. Um, okay. um, but no, I mean, I, I think that you know, Michael Eric Dyson, um, I read all of Baldwin's books, Zora Neale Hurston, for people who are of age, I mean, even middle school kids can can start start with um, with those books. Mark, Mark Lamont Hill, Nobody. Um People Who Are Trying to Understand the Politics of the Day is one of the books I have behind me. Healing Politics by Abdul Al-Sayed is a good book. He ran for governor against Gretchen Whitmer and, um, in Michigan. Um, he was an upstart. He's a former um, public health official in the city of Detroit. Um, so there are, you know, there are some really, 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 really good books that I would encourage people to read. For children's books, I think there is a huge gap and void for kids coming up and what they should read, to be completely honest, and teaching tools that we have to fill. A couple more around politics, a few around policing. Do you think, um, do you think politicians have um, abandoned the South, especially those black parts of the South? Specific question, do you think national politics has abandoned the South, especially black America? Is voting working? If not, what can people to do to address the real injustices in our system? Is voting working? And the answer to that is no. I, I, many of you guys probably haven't watched the news just yet about what happened today in Georgia um, while, wow. we, while, we were, while we were burying George Floyd um, and talking about the quest for justice. People in black parts of Georgia, Atlanta in particular, were in line for three to six hours waiting to vote. 
there was a lady who was in line for six hours. She got there at 6 a.m. trying to cast her ballot. Um, you know, just that type of inability to access the ballot box is an injustice in itself. Nobody has abandoned the South. There are a lot of us here who are still fighting that good fight. I got 42%, 41, 42% of the vote in 2014 running statewide. I was trying to be the first African-American elected statewide since Reconstruction. After me, you had um, Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum, who got really, really close. Stacey actually won, but I digress. Um, now you have uh, Ralph Warnock, um, who's a minister of Ebenezer Baptist, where King uh, actually preached, who's running for the United States Senate. Drop him $5 if you can. Jamie Harrison running against Lindsey Graham. Drop him, drop him $5 if you can. Kyle Cunningham running against Tom Tillis. Kyle is going to win. Drop him $5 if you can. So, like, nobody's giving up. Doug Jones, um, he's going to have an uphill battle in Alabama. Oh, boy. But, I mean, Doug Jones, hopefully, you know, if he doesn't win, I think Doug Jones should be Attorney General of the United States. You know, yeah. I think that that is perfect. So, nobody's giving up. It's just... It's a lot more difficult to, to tend the soil over here. Now, will you run again? Yes. Oh, yeah? What, is, what are you thinking about? I mean, we'll run, we'll, run, we'll run for United States Congress. I'm in Jim Clyburn's district. We'll run for Congress soon. Um, don't know when that's going to be. Hopefully 2022, but we'll see what happens. Thank you. Last two questions. One is around anxiety. Someone asked, I guess that, that was helpful to some folks the way you have talked about that. Do you still experience it? And how do you manage it? Communication. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I get very anxious often. Um, um, you know, I don't let it paralyze me. Um, communicate. Try to try to be more communicative to my wife and others. Have people I talk to, if it's Bishop Jakes or someone else. Um, you know, I, I just, I think it's something that we have to acknowledge, especially as black men, that's usually the first step. And when you think about all that you've accomplished, at a relatively young age, what would you say to folks who are looking at you and saying, I would love to do that, but that anxiety has me doubting myself, talking against myself. I'm in my head and I can't get out of it. What would you say to folks? Well, first thing is, I don't really count my accomplishments. I let other people write my obituary, right? Yeah. I don't really get caught up in that, but I'm not atypical. There are so many people who can do things better bigger, brighter than I have, just need the opportunity. And they should utilize when they get caught in their head, as you say, as I said, um, they should utilize that as, as their superpower. You know, my, my fears, as I outlined, my fears are death and failure. And I, people ask me often, what are you going to do in five years or 10 years? Those are the most difficult. If you want to stump me, ask me that question. Um, because I try to make the most of every 24-hour period. I literally live in 24 hours at a time. Very nice. Well, last question for you is, it is an informed tradition to ask all speakers the following question. You had 60, a 60 second idea to change the world. What would it be? If I had a 60 second idea to change the world, yeah. all I would do was spend probably 10 seconds and say, I'm thankful for this platform. I would spend the other 50 seconds hugging my kids and letting them know they can be great. And then I would send them out in the world to complete the work that I haven't finished yet. Kari, it's really been a pleasure, brother, to have you um, with the Commonwealth, to be able to be in conversation with you and to learn from you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. Anybody who hasn't picked up the book, please give it a chance. Great Father's Day gift. Um, I hope everybody supports. 
um, so that they can be other people of color, other young people, other people in the South to get a chance to share their story. So thank you all and God bless you. Thank you. Now, we just want to remind everybody that you can get copies of the new book, My Vanishing Country. It's available now for purchase. If you'd like to watch more virtual programs on the Commonwealth Club, you can do so virtually and experience all this programming, YouTube, Facebook, etc. Thank you all for staying with us. Stay safe.